0: Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm hitting record.
1: Yeah. I started it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, here we are. I'm keeping it in. It's funny. All right. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Dr. Abby Cullen. I am coming to you with one of my good buddies, Paul. He's a PhD candidate uh, from Florida State University. We're getting together to start what is going to be the Insignificant Figures podcast. Um, So, yeah, I... Just a little background about myself. Uh, I just got my PhD in exercise physiology in October of 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I got my bachelor's in biochemistry from Florida State University in 2016. I started uh, grad school within four months of graduating. And after a year I bypassed my master's and started directly into my PhD work. And uh, right now, I study Alzheimer's disease and I'm looking at the impacts of changes to the cardiovascular system and how Alzheimer's disease and the cardiovascular system, uh, play roles with each other. Like they influence each other. And that, that's kind of like my, I want to show you all that I'm not an expert, but, uh, you know, I know some stuff, (laughs) Paul, what about you? What have you studied?
0: yeah so my like abby said phd candidate in nutrition my background (laughs) background previously is in exercise science so that's what the undergraduate degree and the master's degree was in got done with that focused a lot on exercise physiology and higher performance and we had like two nutrition classes so i said well that's always something i i found interesting i always come from like a bodybuilding background so tracking calories was always interesting to me so Decided to switch things up and pursue a different kind of field for the PhD. Um, came to FSU to start the PhD in 2019 and studied high altitude and nutritional interventions that kind of affect the physiology in relation to high altitude. And then recently switched to another lab where we look at vascular health and reactive oxygen species. So we're hoping to implement a protocol of creatine, so more sports nutrition kind of focus and yeah that's pretty much it about me um academic related at least so
1: well hopefully we'll get some more deep dives into our science as this podcast kind of continues to grow and evolve but speaking to that effect I wanted to kind of share with you all like the mission statement or like the goal of the podcast why should you be listening to us talking I'm literally sitting in a closet Recording this. Paul's looking at me and he's like, why did I agree to go on this journey with this person? (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to lay it out flat. So basically, academia is the field in which many scientists end up finding themselves. Its basic components are teaching students. It's finding funding and then publishing your data. Uh, this podcast in particular is going to touch on a lot of academia-related topics, but the most important thing will be talking about publishing data. For every paper that gets published, there are a plethora of data that don't make the cut, and, and why not? Because they're insignificant or their results don't contribute to the story that the authors are trying to tell. And this is where the institution of academia begins to do itself a disservice, The unpublished, insignificant data are important for completing the picture of a particular field or a niche area of science, and it allows for the communication of protocols that didn't work, connections that are there or not there, and other information that researchers could use before spending the time and resources to investigate them. Why is it so difficult to get insignificant data published? So... The goal of this podcast is to talk to scientists about their insignificant data. What did they do with it? How did it shape their story? Did they try to publish it? Where did it go from an insignificant data set? We will talk to scientists at all stages of their careers. You know, professors, postdocs like myself, and graduate students like Paul, and we're going to get their perceptions on insignificant data and what can be done with it to benefit science. Beautifully put. What?
0: Beautifully put.
1: Uh, thanks. <laughs> it's like I wrote it out or something. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically this episode of the podcast is an introduction. We kind of want to like lay some ground facts, like straight facts. Not really. This is like our perception of everything, right? I, uh, You know, I talk all this game about like having evidence and stuff and like data. But right now I just want to like talk with people. And, and do this. But we need to lay kind of the groundwork so that everyone listening to this is understanding what we're talking about. So to do that, we're going to kind of talk about what the heck science is in this day and age. And uh, Paul and I are going to do kind of a back and forth on this. But what I want to talk about first is grants. And I feel uh, particularly invested in grants right now because I just submitted an NRSA F32 and when you hear that strange combinations of letters and numbers you're like what the heck is that but basically it is a postdoctoral fellowship from the National Institute of Health and it would fund me for 3 years so it's basically I'm fighting for my salary for 3 years that way I can like make a living it's amazing um but grants really are important for all scientists because while I'm just a postdoc and I'm trying to fight for my salary so I can continue my training, other professors, assistant professors, tenured professors are fighting not only for their salaries but for the money in order to do their science. And I think that's something that not a lot of people understand is that you have to fight and scrap for like every single bit of money that comes your way in science and you do so by writing grants. You can write grants for, oh goodness, like just technology that you need to buy, like software in order to analyze things. You can apply for grants to get the equipment that you need in order to run something or travel grants so that you can travel to the place that you need to do the research in. You can get grants for anything. The problem is everyone is trying to get grants and the likelihood of you getting funding is, it's like less than 10%. Honestly, I've submitted six grants now that I have been out of graduate school. I got one and the funding was for like less than three months. And then I had to return it because I left the lab that I was working in. But that's another deep dive podcast that we'll get into later. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so grants are kind of where science starts. And uh, Paul, what what happens after you get a grant?
0: Once you get the grant, you got to do the project. You got to back up what you said you could do. So kind of building off what Abby said, you got to make this case for this is the science I'm planning on doing. This is the personnel. This is the equipment. This is what I need the money for. And this is what we can give you in return. It's kind of a, this is what I can deliver to you in in service. And one of the most fascinating things I think is when you, get one of these professorship positions you get start funds like starting up funds and they give you so much money and that's it in terms of your research and so that'll get you started and then you generate Mm -hmm. pilot data and then you apply for the grant (laughs) And, and it's really stressful when you start in a new lab situation probably deep dive on that as well but yeah you only have this so much money and you have to sell you have to create this sales pitch to get this grant that says i will do this project And when you get the grant, you can start the project and then you have to deliver results. Most of the time, you have to update the people that gave you the money and said, hey, here's how it's going. This is what we're delivering. Mm -hmm. And it depends on, again, who gives you the grant. Are they biased or not? You know, um, again, do
1: they like your science?
0: (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Do they like the methodology? You know, they may like it. A lot of these grant funding agencies say, hey, we want a project on this topic. So how do... I don't know, let's say, how do almonds affect um, one at max? And so <laughs> everybody comes together, you know, all these scientists from different universities, and say, okay, like here's what I'm thinking. And so everybody gives them their sales pitch, and and you know these grant agencies or organizations will say, okay, I like I like this idea. They give you the money, yeah. they accept the project to be done, and and regularly reported, and yeah, that's that's what happens. Yeah. when you get the grant?
1: Yeah, you, you have to actually do what you said you were going to do. And most of the time you write this great and you're like, oh, yeah, that'll be like, oh, this is so cool. And then you start doing, you're like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? Like, this is terrible. I can't believe I have to do this. And then, well, well you kind of figure out how to go from there.
0: <laughs> well, and that's usually why a lot of these organizations like to see that you have pilot data that you like, that you have work that says, OK, I've done some of this stuff or I can back up if you're. If you're doing an ambitious study, you have worked to suggest that if it's human model, so I, I work with humans a lot, mm-hmm. you've shown that you can at least do some of it. You know, if you're proposing yeah. this crazy experiment and these reviewers are going to say, how do you how do you know that you can get people to do this? Are you paying them a lot or is it an easy study design? Um, if you don't have that, they're not going to fund the idea. Um, I don't think, I mean, it varies, yeah. but...
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, do you have the expertise? Have you worked with the model before? Have you done an experiment like this in the past where you found something significant, right? Right. Like they want to know all of that and, and they want to know that before you do the project. So those kind of things go hand in hand because while you need to write the grant in order to do the project, you have to have kind of have to have actually done that project before. In order to write the grant, so those are like pretty interchangeable. Um, I, the next like thing in our flow chart that we're looking at is to analyze the data that you're looking at or that you've gathered, and that can take a very long time, but it also can ta- it can also be pretty fast. I got through a lot of data in a very short amount of time when I was working on my dissertation, um, so I can analyze pretty quickly. Um, when the time is right. I think that's also kind of the most fun part of doing science is kind of analyzing the data. I don't really care for figuring out what stats I'm supposed to run on it. Like that is uh, something I always have to be like, well, what group should we compare? I mean, like you talk about it when you're writing your grant stuff, but sometimes things come up and you're like, Oh, I wonder if something was happening between these things while we were collecting data. And like, it, it does get to be very interesting. And and what about after, Paul? What's the next?
0: Next is write the paper. So once you have, hopefully, your significant data uh, or your interesting <laughs> results, then you put that paper together and you send it out to journals. And hopefully they like it and they accept it. Or you have to keep moving down the totem pole journals until finally one says, <laughs> we'll take you on. And it's a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of reviewers, which are other professors in that field, that will read your yeah. paper. So when they mention peer reviewed journals or peer reviewed papers, it means a fellow amount of your peers have reviewed that paper from the journal and they've accepted it. And which hardly ever happens for the first time from what ha. I understand, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they'll have a lot of feedback and they'll. Yeah the main thing is they want to improve your paper. They want you to get a good paper out there that'll benefit science as a whole. And yeah, that's really hard to understand because when you get this feedback, it feels like it it cuts deep. Yeah. It cuts deep. You're like, so personal reviewer two is always the worst, but I feel like reviewer two has always got the worst things to say. And you like,
1: you know what though? I, to be fair though, on some of my grants, the most harsh reviewer has been reviewer three. Hmm. And, and reviewer one is like a, mild and then reviewer two has been like nice mm-hmm. i've had a nice reviewer too there's uh, and you'll talk to anyone in the science community and they'll say who's the worst it's reviewer two every time but i think it's because there's only two reviewers on journal articles right
0: mm-hmm.
1: my grants have had on average three reviewers per grant but i think for journals it's only two people so the second is always the worst
0: yeah. And, and here's an interesting question, Abby. How how long is this timeline between you kind of applying for the grant and then you getting this science finally published? What what does that timeline roughly look like?
1: Okay, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a very long story, but here we go. It takes approximately three to four months to get a grant ready. When in the like if you have to do data analysis in order to like provide some preliminary data. Then you submit the grant. You don't hear back from the reviewers until like three or four months after you submitted the grant. And you know how many times you gotta do that to get funding? At least 10 before something hits, right? So let's say you spend a year then. Let's let's call the grant, the grant writing process a year to get the money. The projects take anywhere between Two to five years, depending on what you're looking at. The analysis can be done in a few months. The writing takes a few months. The submission process, though, Paul, my good friend, is the longest thing because it's an additional year. Mm-hmm. It's another whole year of um, trying to find the right journal for you to publish your article in. They'll they'll take it to the editor of the journal. And then the, the editor will decide whether or not it should get reviewed. So sometimes it's with the editor for two weeks and then they send it back to you and they're like, no, we're not even going to review this. Then you go to another journal. They send it to their reviewers. The reviewers are like, oh, there's no way. This doesn't even fit within the scope of the journal. Look somewhere else. Okay. And that's taken, you know, another month off of your time, your time scale here. Then you submit it to a third place the reviewers review it and they give you comments they ask you to do additional experiments Paul the audacity of these people they oh my god and it's not these people like if we have to do it right if something was in question we got to fix it you do the extra experiments you resubmit you get more comments you resubmit again they're like okay we like it it's another like 3 or 4 months until it actually gets published so start to finish Sometimes it can take like six years
0: mm-hmm.
1: or more to get something published that took you. I don't know. In my case, I got my stuff done fast because I work in cell culture. You know, I collected <laughs> my data over the course of several weeks. Must be nice. It is nice. got I miss the cells. <laughs> um, but it can take years, start to finish. And that is why science is so slow. And I think no one under, like, not no one, but. I think a lot of people outside of the scientific community community do not understand how slow science is.
0: Yeah, no, even in undergrad, I would look at science, and be like, Oh, cool. You just, um, you get some equipment and you have an interesting question and uh, bingo bango, you yeah. got, you got a project done and you publish it. But in, in exactly. reality, nothing, nothing like that at all. And, and that's something we review a lot of papers in our lab. And we, we kind of talk about the shortcomings, what are the pros of these and that's one thing I've tried to keep in in mind is this was a lot of work for somebody and this took years um, and a ton of struggle. And so just trying to keep that in mind when we're reading papers, but yeah, it really is a interesting point to make for sure.
1: Yeah. It's a really long time and God dang, is it annoying when you can't get there, right? Like if you can't get across that finish line, oh, it's a bummer.
0: Well, and that leads us into the next point is
1: Yeah, you know,
0: significant data. (laughs) You do all this work, and you're hoping you proved your hypothesis right, or sometimes wrong, but still a positive way. You your intervention, your trial did something, and Mm -hmm. you're like, that's really cool. But talk about when it does nothing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So the problem is your data. In order for you to get published, it basically has to be significant. And what we mean by that is we're looking at something where you've got a p value, which Maybe we need to do a whole episode about stats in general. Maybe I can have my uncle come on, he's a statistician. (laughs) He could talk to us about stats for a little while. Um, But basically, everything in science is revolved around this alpha confidence interval of 90. We are 95% sure that this difference is not subject to, oh my gosh, what's the word? It's subject to chance. Right, so we have a 95% confidence level. That this is actually different, not because some weird stuff's happening, but because there's an actual difference. And that means that you have a p-value of less than 0.05. And that that is the crux of science. That stupid p is less than 0.05. And there's a lot of ways for people to get there. And the problem is you've got to have something called power. Paul, can you... Can you Give everybody a little bit more detail, because I, like I said, you know, I'm not the best statistician.
0: Well, it's it's one of the topics that I think anybody in academia always says, "Oh, I wish I knew more about stats." So, uh, hopefully, I can do this some justice. But when you're talking about power, are you do you have enough people in your study, enough data points to say animals or cells or animals or cells? Yeah, I just deal with humans, so that's all I think about. Do you have enough data points, essentially, or humans, cells, animals in your study to say what you're saying is actually true? Um, If I'm trying to say something about the population, I have one person that's probably not going to be enough power to say what I'm saying. And basically what we're talking about when we talk about power, significance, and so if we, in the simplistic terms of saying we use an intervention study, which means we're adding something to people's lives to say, blueberry consumption, we add blueberry compared to a placebo. So something that's not related that wouldn't do anything. And we find that blueberries have increased health benefits and we run the stats and all the beautiful stuff. And we, we find a P value that is less than 0.05. We feel confident saying, yeah, (laughs) exciting. We would say we feel good about saying that this blueberry consumption actually did something. But if it wasn't, then we'd say, oh, there's just a chance, you know. So we would say that's insignificant.
1: Oh, it hurts my heart to hear it. It really does. Even just the the word insignificant, because unfortunately, you kind of have to have significance to publish right now. Don't don't you think, Paul?
0: Oh, completely agree. And it's a shame. It really is sad because we've talked about this a lot, but it, it doesn't get to the whole picture. And even one thing that's kind of I've been wondering about this week is how many people design studies to just get significant results, because that's where the whole job industry of academia is getting you need significant data to get these grants, you need to say, Hey, we found positive results here, give us more money. It all revolves around significant data. And so we're only telling this one side of the coin, which is significant data instead of insignificant data. And it just seems that's flawed. Like, would yeah. you
1: agree? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's. I think it's terrible. <laughs> um. And and we're going to get into it in a minute, but it's such a waste. Mm-hmm. Like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You've got to have it to get published, right? And what what happens to it if it's not significant? There's some journals that will publish insignif- insignificant data. I found a couple of them. We're going to talk about them in the next couple of podcasts. But... There's not that many. And they're unfortunately have a very low. um, Oh, what's the word? Impact factors. Oh, they have very low impact factors. And we can talk about that later too. We don't have to get into it now, but you know, they're, they're not rep, they're considered not reputable. And like, that's so annoying because it's still good science. You still have important data, but because people are so I don't know, they're idolizing this idea that everything has to be different in order for there to be importance. It, it is basically like they are trying to draw a 2D structure and we need 3D or 4D at this point. And knowing when or when there is not a connection between two pathways is important because it informs a lot of people. It will tell people from different niche fields of science something important to their data you know what i mean like who cares if it's insignificant or not someone else might have been like oh i was about to do that experiment i i don't know it's so important i think it's so important It really gets me jazzed did i say that okay it's fine
0: (laughs) i can tell yeah so in, in my in my case in my case you know we designed this pilot study that was looking at does altitude affect your resting metabolic rates? I mean, how many calories you burn at rest? And we're trying to find, okay, what altitude level should we use? How long in the tent should they be? All this kind of stuff. And there wasn't a ton out there when we looked in terms of that. So say we conducted my study and we found nothing. And if you're going on the pretense of saying, insignificant data, don't publish it. Don't worry about it. Just floats off into nowhere on the OneDrive. that's on there. Um, my
1: god (laughs) some
0: some phd student long from now comes along and says man i'd love to do this project and they're sitting down trying to think (laughs) about it same spot i was 10 years ago or you know what vice versa and so they're and then they do the same project and so you've wasted yeah you wasted time you wasted resources and all this Mm -hmm. stuff and you've wasted science as a whole and then you you don't even get into it if that student doesn't publish it and so you wonder I, I get jazzed up too. We'll use the word jazzed up. Yeah. Um, oh no. But how much science is left on the cutting room floor that doesn't get told. And there's so yeah. much resources that go into, well, we're giving, we're filling out this puzzle, but we're not going to include all the puzzle pieces.
1: Yeah. Or we're not going to like, we're not going to do it in color and, like you're gonna need different colors in order to see the whole picture kind of thing yep. you know what i mean we actually have it in our notes like what happens if the data isn't significant and it, it says it becomes a dissertation or <laughs> master's thesis because no one wants to like who cares about what you publish in your thesis or right like that doesn't matter but the paper that comes from your thesis does matter but more often than not like basically nothing gets done with this insignificant data. It just literally sits in, oh my God, you mentioned it. uh, It sits in the OneDrive or it sits in Dropbox and it just sits there and does nothing. And it has wasted so much. And that's what I really want this podcast to be about because we are wasting time. We are wasting money, labor, science, and most importantly, it is wasted resources. I am, you know, trying so hard to live my life low waste, sustainably because of how much trash I create at work. I literally started in 2017 making these changes to my life because I started working on my PhD and I was just floored by how much waste I was making at home. And thankfully, I had a friend who inspired me and I was like, yeah, I can start composting. And, and it just took off from there. So I want to know what the heck people are thinking when we're doing all of this research, making a bunch of trash, and nothing's there's nothing positive coming from it. I want to know what gives us the right as scientists to contribute so negatively to the planet. Because it. I feel like it's two sides of the same sword, right? Like, the science world is not impacted by their data. We're... We're slashing up and and ruining the story of science by not publishing it, but we're also kind of cutting down the planet and using all of these plastics Mm -hmm. for no reason. Completely agree. Yeah. Sorry. I could talk about that for literally forever. And that's why we started a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so this is kind of, I guess how it's going to go, huh, Paul?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Back and forth. Talking about stuff. Good conversation.
1: Getting jazzed up. (laughs) It would be funnier if you could see what was going on when we got all, like, frustrated, but it's fine.
0: Yeah, I, well, you can already tell, you know, the frustration and the passion in yeah, your voice from so. insignificant data. And and one of the things that I've called into question is kind of how flawed academia can be at times if we're always thinking about significant data and study design affects it. Your career yeah. is affected by it. And yeah, there's a lot of flaws to science and You know, we're here to address it. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about some insignificant figures for sure. And yeah, uh, yeah, just a lot of cool topics, deep dives on things. and
1: Yeah. yeah. We're going to talk to other scientists. We're going to read papers. We're going to, I guess, kind of pull back the curtain on what's going on. And, you know, a lot of people maybe are doing it, but I think because of where we're at in our careers, we have kind of like an interesting perspective on it. Because, like, I'm trying to get in slash get out of academia. You're just trying to get through.
0: I'm just trying to get those three letters, like, next to my name. So. Well, you
1: have the Ph.D. C phd
0: yeah i actually have more letters next to my name than yeah. i will get when i get the phd hey. so hey <laughs>
1: you have more letters next to your name than i have next to mine i'm just abby Cullen phd you're at you're paul baker msp or is it PhD MS? like what do you do after that actually that's a weird question but i have it i just
0: take it down to phdc and then my my cscs for nsca so
1: whoa <laughs> so many letters in science
0: yeah, well, you got people's signature lines that can't even fit on the on the thing because they got so many letters behind <laughs> their name and you don't even know what half of them mean. But
1: So true. Okay, well, we've got a lot in store for everybody. I hope that you had some fun listening to us talk together and that you'll come back and listen to us in the future. And until next time, I don't have a tagline to end the podcast. Thank you for listening.
0: Bye.